Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thanks for listening. It's great to have you with us. If you'd like to get a little closer, we have a comment section for each episode at our website, thenexttrack.com. And we also have a contacts page if you have some questions or maybe some suggestions for future episodes. We'd love to hear from you at thenexttrackalloneword.com. Today, we wanted to talk about classical recordings and how well or not well they are doing. And luckily, we know an expert on that subject, our good friend, Andy Doe. Andy, welcome back. It's great to see you. It is great to be back on the show. Thank you for having me. You're in a good mood today. I am when you finally asked me about something I know about. <laughs> okay. So the idea for this episode came when I saw a question in a classical music group on Facebook. Someone was asking do classical record labels make money? And this is a valid question because we constantly read about the death of classical music and how these records don't sell and how record labels are going under. And I thought Andy would be absolutely the perfect person to talk about this. But Andy, for the listeners who don't know you, can you please explain why you have this secret arcane knowledge about classical music labels and how many records they sell? Okay, so my background, the reason that Kirk and Doug have asked me on the show to talk about this is because I ran the classical department at iTunes and I was the chief operating officer at Naxos, which is the largest classical record company. And I now consult for artists and organizations who are starting their own labels. So I've started a lot of labels. I've run a big label. I've run small labels and I've worked with all the labels on selling a large amount of music. And I teach the music business and entrepreneurship courses at the Trinity Lab and Conservatoire of Music and Dance. Very good. Now listeners will realize why I don't always list Andy's CV when we have him on, because it's only a half-hour show, and it would take me about five minutes to list all his accomplishments and vocations. He's like our, our personal human Wikipedia. And that's why it will be super embarrassing if I get stuff wrong on this episode. We'll just edit out anything that's wrong. Just a quick point. You mentioned Chief Operating Officer at Naxos. You said the largest classical record label in the world. It's worth noting that Naxos is not just a label, but they're also a distributor, and they distribute dozens, maybe more than 100 smaller labels as well. That's right. So Naxos functions both as a uh, repertoire center, making recordings, funding recordings, and branding up the discs, but also has warehouses which distribute not just their own music, but the music of, of many other labels. And those warehouses, distribution centers, are housed around the world, and they have literally millions of CDs on shelves waiting to be picked, packed, and shipped. You mentioned some of the things that those labels do, but just in general, what does a label do? I mean, what does a label facilitate? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. So traditionally, what a label would do is it would fund and project manage the making of recordings. It would then uh, brand and market those recordings. And at some point, those recordings need to be, uh, if, they're, if they're being distributed physically, they need to be pressed, they need to be shipped to warehouses, and then housed, supplied to retailers, and then delivered to the consumer. And sometimes the a uh, distribution company is the same is owned by the same umbrella organization as as the people that made the record the the label sometimes the distributor is a separate company sometimes the distributor is a separate company 
that belongs to a company that also makes recordings. And so you can have a situation where, like, the, the label that I just set up for Colin Curry, who's a classical percussionist, just made the Steve Rice record, which I'm plugging here because I can. Um, this record will be distributed in the UK by Harmonia Mundi. Uh, Harmonia Mundi is a distribution company, but it is also a label. But the Harmonia Mundi logo will not appear on the Colin Curry CDs because the, the label, who press and the CDs own copyright and uh, own the stock, is Colin Curry Records and not Harmonia Mundi or its parent company, uh, Pius, or Play It Against Sam. So in that case, Colin Curry Records records the album, produces it, masters it, presses the CDs, puts it in the jewel cases, sends it to Harmonia Mundi, and Harmonia Mundi ships that out to retailers and manages all those sales, returns, etc. That's right. They manage the sales and returns, and they will also be uh, responsible for communicating with the retailers over what's coming up. And so that, that will mean uh, there's a kind of element of sales promotion there where they'll be, they'll be going to retailers and saying, hey, these are the big things that are coming up. Uh, but when I worked at iTunes, I was on the receiving end of that The uh, as the, the kind of the buyer for the iTunes Music Store. Uh, labels would contact me. They would say, hey, these are our big priorities coming up next month. We want to make sure that they get promoted in all the places that you do promote music. And those retailer-based promotions, things like the, the newsletters that you send out, can be quite effective in, in marketing a recording. Uh, obviously, at a, at a big digital retailer, you're basically going to carry every every recording. But a physical retailer, you have inventory to manage. And so the buyer at a physical record store will have to try to make sure that they have enough copies to meet demand without overstocking. And that's where the distributor's job involves a good amount of anticipating demand and being able to communicate well what the selling points of an album are. Right. And the sales reps take orders a few months before the records are pressed and released, and that can drive the print run of CDs and books. I happen to have been on the receiving end of this too. In the early 1990s, I worked in a French bookstore for about three years, and Harmonia Mundi was actually a book distributor at the same time. That's they right. distributed books and CDs. I don't know if they still do books. Uh, they did last time I went there, but that was a while ago. Yeah. So in France, they distributed a number of small presses. And so you would get someone who would come and say, you know, we think this is going to sell. You should take more of these. There would be promotions. There would be posters. There would be end cap boxes or whatever it was. Now, obviously, as you say, in digital, it doesn't matter because everything just you sell everything and you don't have to order a certain number of copies and inventory isn't an issue. That's right. So record labels also do A&R, don't they? That's right. Typically, the record company will be looking to form relationships with artists who are going to make records that people are going to want to buy. And they'll be looking out for a, a few particular attributes in a, in a project, that it be interesting and and unique in some way that is is saleable they'll be looking for a recording that where they can explain what the deal is with this project relatively straightforwardly so you know it's the four seasons which you love but it's recorded with string quartet instead of a large ensemble and that makes it really sparkle it allows them to get a lot more energy into it 
uh, or you know this is the first period instruments recording that uses all of the versions that we used in the first recording or uh, this is a faithful recreation of the first performance of this piece or this has never been done with these superstar artists those those are the sorts of unique attributes that people are hoping to find when they're when they're shopping around for recording projects to make so when we look at classical record labels we tend to think of these big labels that have been around for a long time deutsche gramophone columbia decca phillips but haven't they sort of mostly become one or two record labels hasn't there been so much consolidation that there's really not there really aren't that many players anymore are there in the classical music sphere at least among the bigger labels, there are tons of independents. There's a huge profusion and proliferation of very small independent labels, but at the at the kind of top end, there's been a great degree of consolidation. So uh, Philips is part of the Universal Classics, Deutsche Grammophon, part of Universal, uh, Decca is now part of Universal. Uh, the whole EMI Classics was purchased by Warner. The reason that EMI Classics was purchased by Warner is because when Universal wanted to buy all of the EMI catalogue, it would have made their share, they already have a very large market share for classical music, and it would have given them too great a market share of classical music. And so to get through regulatory approval, they had to divest certain catalogues, and the classical catalogue was one of them. Uh, Warner, meanwhile, wanted to acquire some other catalogues that Universal also needed to get rid of. And so uh, a deal was done and Warner acquired EMI Classics, having essentially been winding down their classical activity. It's a little dizzying, but it happened for business reasons. And so the third major label is Sony, which is acquired Columbia and what else? Uh, Columbia, BMG, uh, and a bunch of smaller catalogues got got rolled into there uh, along the way. So we have the three major labels, but as you said, there are a lot of smaller labels being created, and, and you've been involved in several of them. Is this because this way the artists have more control? Well, you know, what used to happen was that major labels would grow their catalogues in two ways. They would make lots and lots of recordings, but they would also acquire the catalogues of smaller labels. Nowadays, we got to the point where the major labels pretty much have as many or more recordings than they have a way to to market and monetize. So they're no longer doing that. And it tends to be that new independent labels start up when artists, institutions, or people with the means to make recordings decide that the only way a record they believe needs to be made is going to get made is if they do it themselves. Uh, that certainly is the reason why the majority of my clients end up self-funding recordings and normally, though not always, starting their own labels in order to release them. It's certainly possible to fund your own recording and then take it to a major label. But at that point, the value proposition of a deal with a major label is is very different and there are fewer reasons to work with one. So out of all these labels, who makes money? Do they make money? Do they make a lot of money? Is this champagne and caviar money for the major labels? Is it Big Mac and Coke money for the indie labels? I'm teetotal and I'm vegetarian, so I don't get a lot of champagne or caviar. <laughs> but uh, I've definitely seen some. There's a lot less of it about than there used to be. 
but it certainly is possible to make a living from recordings. It is possible to make a profit from recordings. And there is definitely a, a thriving and profitable business there. The doom and gloom that you hear around classical recordings has a number of origins, a number of root causes. And certainly we have seen a very challenging decade and a half for the classical music industry, as indeed we have for the music industry as a whole. Globally, uh, recorded music revenues are currently increasing. They are not shrinking as they had been for a long time. Uh, this is mostly because digital sales are offsetting, the growth in digital sales is offsetting the decrease in physical sales. Um, there are new classical labels starting up and running at a profit, but also there are a growing number of classical labels which are essentially not being run with the goal of making a profit. And if your goal is not to make a profit, but to make better records, then it's possible to make much, much better records than those made by people who are in the extremely risk-averse position of having to secure a return on investment for the recording projects that they've made, especially when those people are working with partners who have chosen to work with them on the assumption that a profit will happen and, and that there'll be, there'll be money in it for them. So bean counters. The thing about counting beans is that it can definitely result in a, a steady and risk-free supply of beans, but it doesn't always result in better records. Okay. So the classical music market is really a small share of the overall music market. What is it, about 5%? Uh, its uh, percentage varies by territory quite a large amount. In the US, it, it kind of hovers around somewhere between 1.5% and 3%, depending how you count it. Uh, in Japan, it's much closer to 10%. Austria, it can be even higher than that. In the UK, again, it's, it's pretty low. It's a small percentage of the overall business, but... It's a small percentage of a very large business. Right. And there are lots of us who make a living from it. So how much do classical records sell? You know, we hear in, with pop music, they're talking about a Taylor Swift album sold a few million in the first couple of weeks. Classical records don't get anywhere near that, do they? When I worked at Naxos, uh, there was an, a general kind of rule of thumb that we would not accept a project even if it was free, even if the master came to us for no money, if the record was expected to sell fewer than 1,500 copies. So, you know, you might, you know, looking, that's at a, a, a budget label where they have very, very low or zero costs for acquiring a master, where somebody wanted the record made enough that they would make the record, pay to make it, and then give it to a big company without any expectation of any royalties in return. Um, for them, a record needed to sell 1,500 units to be worth the rest of the work that got done and the financial risk that was taken on. Um, I think it's possible to make a profitable recording selling fewer copies than that, but you're unlikely to have a global physical distribution for that recording. And often the kind of records that I work on 
our anticipated total sales are somewhere between 5,000 and 30,000 units. 30,000 still sounds respectable for a classical record. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a good one. That's a good one. But, you know, I, I, I work on good records. I mean, you know, that, that, would, that would stand out. If I tell my my friends on the you know at lunch after some like the BPI classical committee meeting or something that yeah oh that one that sold thirty thousand units they'd be like oh right nice you know that's <laughs> that's that's respectable yeah that's bragging rights in the bar but you can sell thirty thousand copies of a classical record most labels would be very happy to have one that did that well but if that record cost eighty five thousand pounds then that record may still owe you money. That was going to be my next question. What does it cost to record a classical record? And obviously there's a big difference between a record with a solo pianist and an entire orchestra. But start at the low end, a solo pianist or a string quartet or a, a pianist and a violinist. What are the recording costs for that? Okay, so uh, recording costs do vary hugely. And uh, roughly you're looking at the price of a car. So... Uh, somewhere between uh, a Toyota and a Tesla. Well, I'm thinking like marg- marginally above the scrap value of a car, up to <laughs> supercar. You know, and and these are, this seriously is the range. It's like you know, 150 dollars to 150 thousand dollars or more. You certainly spend more than that making a record. You're very unlikely to get that money back. But um, thinking through the budgets of the last few records I've made. We're talking £400, £15,000, £200, uh, £65,000, £66,000. I think the most expensive record I've worked on in the last five years or so was £77,000. But what kind of record do you get for £200? I mean, what (laughs) what are you talking? I mean, really, what are you, you know, what are you recording? Yeah. Okay, so the way that you make a record for two hundred pounds is uh, you get good at not paying for things. <laughs> I, I, okay. I mean, in 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 all seriousness, like for two hundred pounds, two hundred pounds is roughly what it will cost to get a piano tuner to sit there for the duration of your recording session and keep the piano touched up. So, if that's your one expense, then you have to find somebody who will lend you a concert grand piano, a room to put it in where it can be set up. You need to get someone to come and record it for free, edit it for free. You need to get all of the equipment required to record it for free. You have to do the marketing yourself. You have to design your own album cover or get someone to do that for you for free. And when you come to send promotional copies of your record out to journalists, you are either buying the stamps yourself or you're sending digital promos because... You're on the free tier on Dropbox. <laughs> you know, you have to, you, you have to do that. But if you press 100 copies of that record and it costs you, you know, 100 units, might cost you £1, £1.50 a unit to get those pressed and you sell them for £10 each, you are in profit. Well, you've made enough to buy the champagne and caviar, but I wouldn't call that a huge profit. Yes, but now you could probably afford a second piano tuner. <laughs> yes, to hire a tuner for the tuner, yes. But if you think about that in, in terms of as a percentage of your total investment, it's a, it's, a huge, it's a huge return. True. But you're not counting the time that you're spending on all of that, licking the stamps and 
chasing up the free microphones and all. Absolutely not. And we're, we're assuming at this point that um, you are already doing as much practice as will contribute to making you play better. But it is possible to make recordings relatively cost-effectively. If you went to one of the big conservatoires in London, then you will probably get an alumni rate at their recording studio. Their piano will have been tuned in the last week, but if you want that piano tuned on the day, you'll have to pay for it. Otherwise, I think the alumni rate at Trinity, where I teach, is uh, £40 an hour. To record a full album, you're looking at maybe two, three-session days. So it's a few hundred pounds in recording. If you provide an edit list to the engineer, you'll get that editing done in a couple of hours. If it's a piano-only record, you probably won't have put out so many mics. You'll have a lot of options. It'll sound good. It'll sound fine. You know, and this will be this will be a Steinway. It'll be a real piano. The studio at the Royal College of Music has a very nice acoustic for a kind of chamber music piano record. Again, pretty inexpensive. You make an album in there for under a thousand pounds. But you know, once you start hiring orchestras, big halls, fancy recording teams, the costs start to mount up. So, you know, if instead you want to rent a venue, you could be paying £1,000 a day or more for a hall that's big enough for a large ensemble. If you're using like the Abbey Road mobile team or something, depending on the size of the session, how many people they send, you know, you could be £1,000 a day, £2,000 a day, £3,000 a day for a silly big session. And then there's the mixing and mastering and editing. If there's going to be a surround mix, there's thousands of pounds on top of that. And then you want to hire an orchestra, right? Because, because you make it a big classical record and you're going to need an orchestra. And uh, there are always deals to be done. But if you just go to the Philharmonia and say, I would like the Philharmonia for two days, then you're going to need another wheelbarrow full of money. A large wheelbarrow or a small wheelbarrow? This isn't the New York Philharmonic we're talking about. The Philharmonia for a day is going to be roughly small suitcase full of money. Okay. So is this why we see more and more live recordings? I noticed that I, I don't go to a lot of classical concerts because we don't have any where I live. But every time I do, there are always microphones present. Now, I would assume that some of these microphones are there just because they record everything. But... Don't a lot of orchestras record everything at more or less recording quality when they perform? Absolutely. That is increasingly happening. And uh, I'm working with a couple of big orchestras now who are adopting this as a, as a matter of course. Um, moving from a system where they make a kind of poor quality archival recording of every concert and then a fancy recording of certain concerts, instead making a fancy recording of every concert. And there's a couple of reasons why that's becoming more common now, partly because it's easier to negotiate the rights to do that with a union, partly because the, uh, the facilities to make those high-quality recordings have got much less expensive over time, and partly because people are being more imaginative about how they use those recordings, partly because improved editing software and techniques make it possible to make releasable recordings from 
live performances in a way that used to be very difficult and expensive, and partly because it is almost unaffordably expensive to make a studio recording for most of these organisations at a time when orchestras recognised that making recordings contributes to their reputation, but no one's going to hire them to make studio recordings. And so they're, they're looking for other ways that they can make them on a much lower cost basis and still get the, the marketing mileage out of them. And, and, and finally, another factor that plays into uh, the increase in live recording that we see and, and really does deserve mention and frequently gets forgotten in these discussions is that the standard of orchestral playing today is so high that orchestras can record stuff live that they simply couldn't have done a generation ago. People are really, really good at playing these days. And there are more recorded there are more live performances worth recording than there were fifty years ago. What about opera? I know that there was a recent release of um Les Troyens by Berlioz conducted by John Nelson on Arado Records. This was not recorded in in an opera performance, it was recorded in a concert performance. Is this done because it's easier to record that way than the, when you record a, a live opera, you hear the people walking across stage and all that, and, and they're moving, so they're not as well mic'd? It's extremely difficult to make a satisfactory live audio recording from a staged opera without doing things to the staging that are quite invasive, because you have scenery, you have uh, often less than ideal acoustic circumstances. You have people moving around and you have distances between people on stage that are constantly changing. And so your choices are to set up a huge array of microphones and be switching between them or to close mic individuals, which is limits your choice of microphone, but also creates all sorts of problems when they're then go and stand extremely close together at the dramatic moments of the of the opera so it is difficult to record a staged opera relative to a, an, an unstaged concert performance where people just stand still and sing the music and that might be less satisfying from an audience perspective but it definitely is a whole lot easier to record so one question that i've had for years is we see all these big classical box sets that contain 50 or 100 or even 200 CDs that sell for maybe a pound a CD, a dollar a CD. And how can they be making money off of this? You know, I'm thinking of the the recent Glenn Gould edition is 100 some odd CDs. I have the Alfred Brendel box set, which is something similar, 80 or 100 CDs. And, and I wouldn't say that these are sold at giveaway prices, but compared to what we used to pay for a single CD 20 years ago, the cost of some of these box sets is the equivalent of five or six CDs. How do they do it? Okay. Uh, the reason for this is that it is uh, marginal revenue for the entity that owns the copyright. So most of these recordings have already sold about as many physical copies as anyone seriously expecting them to. They've, they've had their full price moment in the sun. And once they've had their full price moment in the sun, it's still an asset that belongs to the label and they're looking for other ways to extract cash from it. And 
sometimes what they do here is they is they brand them as part of a, a series of single disc recordings like uh, DG Originals or the uh, Great Performances of the Century. And you know, when you look at the Great Performances of the Century catalogue line, you have to ask yourself, like, what by what authority is this? Is this one of the great performances of the the century? What what this actually is is a a record which has recouped its initial investment, made a bunch of profit, is no longer competing with the other full price recordings on this label, is a recording of repertoire which has been re-recorded by somebody else and and which is being marketed as a frontline recording, and is now being exploited as as a kind of different class of definitive recording. Um, what makes it great is that it's recouped its initial investment, but the catalogue department still sees some mileage in marketing it. But we're seeing all these big box sets released in recent years, and it seems it's sort of the culmination of a certain generation of classical performers who recorded a lot of repertoire and who have reached the age now when they're either retired or not recording very much more. And these box sets seem to be a way of saying, well, this is the last money we're going to be able to squeeze out of this artist. Absolutely. Of course, they're not squeezing the money out of the artist, and the artist is going to get paid when you buy these recordings. But the thing is that you're not going to buy this this massive Glenn Gould box set unless you've got other Glenn Gould records. You've probably bought otherwise all the Glenn Gould records you're going to buy. But somebody comes up with some epic box set which maybe it's got a couple of things on it you don't have and it's a nice thing and yeah i mean you think about the way you would rationalize to yourself purchasing a recording like this for for an artist you like like, you know it's a kind of a good deal you know it's massive number of cds it's very little money per cd because it costs very little money to press a cd and to the label they're not having to pay out a whole bunch of cash that sounds to me reminiscent of what the labels do with some of their rock and pop back catalog they'll reissue you know older albums with extra material or older demos or alternative takes and things like that well it's it's not because in in pop and rock music as you say that it's demos and alternate takes because they're looking at one or two or half a dozen albums whereas in classical it's generally a whole career of maybe a hundred recordings that they're releasing that's right. I mean, if you're if you're looking at like the Yo-Yo Ma catalog, it's over a hundred albums before you've started scraping the bottom of the barrel and and finding finding bits of tape stuck down the back of the mixer that have got an alternative take or an edit on them. Like th- these are already quite large catalogs because these are musicians who are not expected to be producing or creating their own repertoire. Um, there is hundreds of years of repertoire for them to choose from. Um, some of them did make a very large number of records. The labels are now not investing in making new records from them. Maybe the artist's not still alive, not still making records, but there is still an opportunity to to monetize this. And because it costs very little to make each individual CD in these box sets, and because these sales are not seen as substitutional, the cost-benefit analysis that the label is making is that independent of all the other sales of this artist's catalogue, there are a million people out there who bought a Yo-Yo Ma record. If a tenth of 1% of them buy this box set, 
And you shifted a lot of box sets. So how many do they expect to sell on a big box set like that? Box sets usually single-digit thousands. Okay. I know that that big Mozart box set that was released, what was it, more than a year ago, Mozart 225, yep. they said it was a limited edition of 3,000. Yeah, and that, that was a particularly big deal. I mean, it was a very big box set, uh, possibly the largest largest classical box set. It might have been, yeah, at the time it was released. I have the previous version of the complete Mozart. On Philips. On Philips. I have that... Um, I can't remember how many it is, 172, 200? 160, I think. 160 170. It's behind me. It's a massive. It's a whole shelf. Yeah. Um, it's comprised of like 17 smaller box sets, a whole load of CDs. And it was initially over a £1,000, I think. Yeah. But, but it doesn't cost anything like that to make that recording. And the, the record companies usually will either own those recordings outright or will have the contractual freedom to package within a box set at, at virtually any price. And so they can put together that box set. They can sell a few units at a silly price. They can drop that price and sell it off at around the price of about a pound a disc and still make a, still make a profit. So we see this, as I said, for artists who've retired, such as Alfred Brendel recently, for artists who have died, you, you see box sets come out. Yet there's one that still hasn't been released, and I was wondering why Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau died, what was it, 10 years ago? I would have expected Deutsche Grammophon to come out with a huge box set. Most of his recordings were on DG, a number of his early recordings were on EMI, and even before that, there were tons of recordings, radio broadcast recordings that are on other labels. Why do you think they haven't come out with a big box set of his music? I don't know. There could be a few reasons. Um, it may be because the catalogue is split between several labels and where people have recorded substantial chunks of their catalogue on more than one label, it can create an obstacle to the kind of definitive box set process. Well, in his case, I, I think about 100 records are on DG and maybe a dozen or 20 on EMI. And everything earlier than that is relatively less interesting. It might also be a contractual thing. Uh, there may be something in the contract that means that it would that they would have to pay out at a level that would make it not worthwhile. It may be that they have done their research on this and it's just not a priority. It's quite likely that uh, such a project will have been brought up at meetings and the catalogue department will have budgeted this and made projections and compared them to the, the other things that they could be doing and have decided that you know, something that doesn't have so much singing in it would make more money. <laughs> yeah, I guess he was a singer, so that's probably not ideal. Well, But then they can just do another recording of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Why do we keep getting more recordings of the same thing over and over and over? Well, there's a few reasons for this. One of them is that recordings form a big part of how a conductor views their legacy. And whether they'll admit it or not, the conductors are all comparing themselves and their career to Herbert von Karajan. You know, they're looking at their discography, they're looking at Karajan's discography, they're looking at their discography, feeling somewhat downhearted. They're looking at Carrie-Anne's discography, recorded at the height of the LP boom, um, running into the CD era. They're looking at their discography, 
put together at a time when the record industry was under massive stress and almost all the good music had already been recorded extremely well. They're looking at Carrie-Anne's discography, which was recorded at a time when there were no really good hi-fi recordings of any of the major repertoire. And so anyone who made a hi-fi recording of major repertoire would be guaranteed to sell hundreds of thousands of units of that because the recordings didn't exist and people couldn't get them. They're looking at their own discography recorded under straightened financial circumstances and then the orchestras programmed Beethoven 9 for the big season finale and they've said uh, should we do a live recording of this maestro we were wondering if you'd waive the fee and they're like hell yeah I'll waive the fee <laughs> so long as you put it out with a picture of me on the front right with and my hair looking crazy and and they're all hoping to get the fast car or the airplane like Carrie Ann had. That that set of CDs is a, is amazing. I'm, I'm teaching. Uh, I'm doing a lecture on Wednesday at Trinity on putting together a, a label. And one of the things we're going to look at is the things that people put on their album covers. And and every time this subject comes up, I think about this series of of Carrie Ann album covers that were like, "This is my yacht." you this is my plane yep. you this is my house <laughs> you like what was that even about well wasn't this sort of in the playboy magazine era when when there was this conspicuous consumption and it was cool to have records that sounded good and so having a record with this guy with the silver hair and the airplane kind of contributed to that whole gestalt i don't know i don't know where this is going now well, have a look in the show notes. I'll find some of these Carrie-Anne covers. Um, if you haven't seen them, they are quite comical. I'm looking at one Carrie-Anne Beethoven symphonies, number five, six, and nine, and he's nonchalantly leaning on the nose of an airplane. That's how he rolls. Thank you very much, Andy, for enlightening us on this, and I hope you have a great time teaching your students how to make albums where they can have their own airplane on the cover. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be, uh, this is my used Toyota. <laughs> All righty, let's do our next tracks. Kirk, what are you going to be listening to? My next track this week is purely coincidental. Andy mentioned earlier that he's produced a record by the Colin Curry group of Steve Reich, and it's a recording of drumming, which is going to be released in a couple of months. I'll link in the show notes to the episode where we interviewed Colin Curry talking about this. But just the other day, None Such released a new Steve Reich recording of two works, Pulse and Quartet, Colin Curry Group performs quartet, and the International Contemporary Ensemble performs pulse. These works are sort of two sides of a coin. Quartet has that rhythmic Steve Reich that we're familiar with. It's got pianos, and it's got drive, and it's got percussion, whereas pulse is a gently pulsing work for wind strings, piano, and electric bass. Steve Reich said that it was in part a reaction to quartet, he wrote Pulse in 2015, and he wrote Quartet in 2013. And in Pulse, he changed keys more frequently than in, in his previous works. It's very interesting to hear these two works together, the one that is relatively peaceful and the one that has that drive and energy that, that Steve Reich is known for. Unfortunately, the entire record is only about 31 minutes long, and, and, and that's a bit of a shame. They could have put another work on it, but the two do fit together as two sides of a coin. I listened to it about a half a dozen times when it came out in an evening. It's really one of the best Steve Reich records I've heard in a long time. It does give you these different types of works of his, 
so if you're not familiar with Steve Reich, check it out. If you do know Steve Reich, well, you've probably already checked it out. What about you, Doug? I have often wondered why one of my favorite British vocalists, John Baldry, never got the fame and acclaim he probably deserved, richly deserved, especially when his first major album called It Ain't Easy from 1971 was co-produced by Rod Stewart and Elton John. In the early 60s, long John Baldry was in several blues bands, the Hoochie Coochie Men, Steam Packet, Bluesology, uh, and these bands had people like Mick Jagger and Rod Stewart and piano player Reg Dwight, you know what I'm talking about. So this album used many of the people that recorded with Stewart and Elton John, like Ron Wood and Caleb Quay, Maggie Bell, people like that, and features a nice sampling of blues and rock and blues and folk. You know, it's very reminiscent of Rod Stewart's Every Picture Tells a Story album, which was recorded around the same time. On this album, Baldry does... Randy Newman's Let's Burn Down the Cornfield, Elton John's Rock Me When He's Gone, an excellent, excellent version of I'm Ready by Willie Dixon, and probably his best-known song, Don't Try to Lay No Boogie Woogie on the King of Rock and Roll. It's a great record, and his other well-known album, called Everything Stops for Tea, is similar in song selection and quality. Baldry did have a few hits, but they were not from his rock repertoire. He actually had hits as a square singer he did a version of you've lost that love and feeling in 1979 which i have vowed i will never listen to again just give me long john the blues singer long john baldry it ain't easy is my next track this has been the next track a podcast about how people listen to music today you can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com there's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.